welcome to the Dobcast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 171st episode of the Nauticast titled The Merry Men, an analysis of a Storm of Swords Aria 4, in which Aria tours the Riverlands with her new pals, captors, both in search of Beric Dundarion. Pals and captors both. I would say with friends like these, who needs enemies? But Arya's got plenty of enemies too. She really just can't catch a break. She truly cannot catch a break. And thank you everyone for your patience for last week. I think Emmett's episode was excellent. So if you've not had the chance to listen to the episode about Stannis and Jon Snow, please go and listen to that right now. And then come right back here and listen to this episode on A Storm of Swords, Arya 4. This episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark M., Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster Joom, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem that was promised, Lord Jake assisted to the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Rigor Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly Warner, the, Kelly Warner of the East, Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugatit's Dent, the Troctolite Warrior, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite sin, Herald of Sharon, Bastard of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentlemen, and the Nonacast, Non-Binary, Non-An-Army. Haldover, the way for T-Well, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwatch, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, the Maker of Drawings, and Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh No, Bastard Pony under the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave, Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Hammer Hall, Hold Up, the Holder of Cups, Sir Tim, the Knight who is guided by voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, and Prince Breaker Targaryen, and Prince Breaker Targaryen, Sat Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt as Future Matt as the one who bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warners of the South, and patron of free wheeling bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate, Lord Christopher of Arendelle, official Ice Master Deliverer, the valiant, pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna, Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the Kingswood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, hopeful, romantic, and unrepentant shipper, Lord Monsef, the severed head of a, prince, of a Targaryen prince riding on the council walls, Sir Small, Sir Small Paul, guardian of the Stonehaven, defender of the Dunnachar Castle, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga and Warren of the West Reserve, and Lord Timothy Marshall, Master of Roads and Bridges. Thank you to all of our Not a Small counselors. Thank you, counselors, as always. 
and our spoiling as we say in every episode we'll potentially be talking about all published books that is the five novels three Duncan novels histories interviews the windswinner sample chapters as well as game of thrones tv show anything and everything our question this week comes from lady sheila s a sworn sword patron who asks why the fuck is benjamin on the wall in the first place I know he's a third son, but seriously, his father and eldest brother are killed in war. The heir rides off, and he fucks off to make a vow he won't reproduce? Did he and Ned fall out about Lyanna or the sudden appearance of his honorable brother's quote-unquote bastard? I've skimmed a few theories, but would love to hear your takes. What do you think about that, Jeff? Why why is Benjen Stark on the wall in the first place? That doesn't seem to make sense, given that you you might want your spare to reproduce to make up for the, the father and the heir, as Sheila says. What's going on there? You need an heir and a spare, as is often said in A Song of Ice and Fire. So yes, Sheila asked an interesting question, and it has been one that's been talked a lot about for many, many years. The theory, and it's not my theory, so just let me get that out of the way first. The theory, though, that I tend to favor is that Benjen Stark is on the wall as part of his guilt in his knowledge of what Lyanna Stark did in terms of leaving Winterfell, in terms of absconding with Rhaegar. I believe that she had help getting out of the castle and that help was found in her younger brother, Benjen Stark. So as the, as Benjen Stark helps Lyanna get out of the castle, she heads off to to link up with Rhaegar down the Riverlands and then Rhaegar probably doesn't abduct her but takes her takes her with him down to down to dorm down to the tower of joy and then ned stark returns with her bones and her body as we find out uh early in a game of thrones so i think benjamin stark's response to this was one of immense guilt it is interesting that benjamin stark takes the black it is interesting that he really didn't have to take the black it is also interesting too that there is a sense that there's a question like, why would Benjamin Stark take the black? I think the answer is found in, in his guild. Additionally, at that time, we do know that Benjamin might have, at that point in time, Rob Stark had just been born. So Catelyn shows back up in Winterfell. Benjamin is probably there at that time, definitely there at that point in time. So Benjamin, it doesn't have to stick around in order to kind of keep the air in places that Stark must always rule in Winterfell, so to speak, because he probably was the Stark in Winterfell when both of his older brothers and his father rode off to war. So I think the reason is guilt over knowing what Lyanna did and his response to it was taking the black. What do you think, sir? I agree. I think that the Benjamin-Lyanna relationship is emphasized whenever we do get like a flashback to the the before times when, you know, Bran sees them playing in the uh, the pool in front of the heart tree when he, he is looking through the weirwood's eyes in a dance with dragons. And specifically they're, you know, when they're fighting and Lyanna knocks Benjamin into the water and, and she says, you know, it's just water. Do you want father to hear? And that, that always seemed like a little hint to me that like, oh, that's Lyanna and Benjamin keep secrets. They keep secrets for each other. There's stuff they don't want to tell dad. And then you get in the Night of the Laughing Tree story, also in a branch chapter, in a branch chapter that's coming up for us very soon. You, you hear about Lyanna being emotionally swept away by Rhaegar's song and crying and then Benjamin pouring wine over her head. So you get you get that strong brother-sister connection and it's linked up to to the Lyanna-Rhaegar relationship. So it makes total sense to me that Benjamin would be involved somehow and w- would, would take the black out of guilt. I do think it's interesting, as, as Sheila proposes, that, that maybe he and Ned fell out at some point. We know Ned fell out with Robert with regards to how uh, it played out with Rhaegar's kids. Maybe Benjamin was upset with with Ned for, for knuckling under to Robert, or maybe he was upset with how things shook out with the rest of their family. Maybe he just 
was really cynical about about Westeros and about the whole Game of Thrones after the fate that their father and brother had suffered and and wanted to get away from it all. I think there's there's a number of explanations that are possible. The Lyanna one stands out to me because if that's true, then it means Benjen might have interesting information to tell, whether it's to John or yes. to somebody else down the line in the story, along with Howland Reed, of course. George has always kept him in his back pocket for that reason. But uh, Benjen might know more about the uh, Helen Reed might know, you know, maybe the one to talk about specifically John's birth. But Benjen might have more information about Rhaegar and Lyanna, how they got together, that he could reveal to another character and therefore the audience. So that that strikes me as as a reason George might be keeping Benjen on ice, so to speak. And um, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where especially since this is a character dynamic established early in the series when George was still working out the story, you could say, well, you know, he George just wanted Benjen on the wall. He just wanted a Stark on the wall to lure John there. And maybe he hadn't thought through why. Maybe that's why it doesn't necessarily make sense, which I think is, is also is also possible. But um, as Sheila raises, you know, it's 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 unusual that Benjen would be there given the timing and set up from right of the stories that Waymar Royce is, is there for a to be a third son, but it's, it's unusual in Benjen's case. So I, uh, I agree with you. I think this, this is probably something to do with Liana. So thank you so much to Sheila for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get show notes, bonus episodes, merch, access to the Slack, weekly mini-sodes that we record before each episode, and shout-outs at the start and end of every episode. Yes, indeed. And if we hit our goal of achieving 950 total patrons, we will start our first of five parts on Theon's The Wind's Winner's Sample Chapter. So, if you heard our episode on Theon and A Dance with Dragons that we recorded back in December and released as a holiday bonus episode for everyone, it's going to be like that, but much much more granular, just the way we like it. In depth, with lots of theorizing on what Theon Greyjoy's, Stannis Baratheon's, and other stories are going to be in The Wind's Winter. And as of this recording of this episode, there are 920 total patrons, meaning that we are a mere 30 patrons shy of achieving our goal. So, if you like what you hear on our regular episodes, want more of that sweet Stannis content you heard Emmett talk about last week, consider becoming a patron today at patreon.com forward slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Arya Stark, she had joined the Brotherhood of Banners and was in search of Beric Dondarrion. Let's see where that journey leads us in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Arya 4. The small square keep was half a ruin, and so too the great grey knight who lived there. He was so old, he did not understand their questions. No matter what was said to him, he would only smile and mutter, I out the bridge against Sir Maynard, red hair and a black temper he had, but he could not move me. Six wounds I took before I killed him. Six? Which, this kind of almost feels like the opening to a Monty Python story in this chapter. Regardless, the maester of that keep is younger and tells the BWB that Beric was hanged six months ago by the Lannisters. Lem Lemoncloak, him of the recently broken nose, says that's true, but Thoros cut him down before he died. Yes, yes, very much cut him down. Sure, okay. Anyways, the maester says the BWB should check in with the Lady of the Leaves to find Beric. So the party heads on, passing by the bridge where Lord Leicester probably maybe held out against Sir Maynard. Tom Sevenstrings mutters that Lord Leicester would probably be as famous as Aemon the Dragonite if he had a singer to write songs about his deeds. But Lem says that Leicester's sons died on either side of Robert's Rebellion. Arya asks who the Lady of the Leaves is, and Angai tells her to wait and see. 
Three days later, as they rode through a yellow wood, Jack B. Lucky unslung his horn and blew a signal, a different one than before. The sounds had scarcely died away when rope ladders unrolled from the limbs of trees. Hobble the horses and up we go, said Tom, half singing the words. They climbed to the hidden village in the upper branches, a maze of rope walkways and little moss-covered houses concealed behind walls of red and gold, and they were taken to the Lady of the Leaves, a stick-thin, white-haired woman dressed in rough spun. We cannot stay here much longer with autumn on us, she told them. A dozen wolves went, went down the Hayford Road nine days past hunting. If they chanced to look up, they might have seen us. So now that the party is in the Wookiee world of Kashik, Tom asks if the Lady of the Leaves has seen Beric. She has not. He was killed by Grigor Kagane, who drove a dagger through his eye. Oh, yes, that's um, that's that's not true, Lem says. People can survive without an eye. Jack B. Lucky doesn't have an eye, and he's alive. You swear he's not dead? The woman clutched Lem's arm. Bless you, Lem. That's the best times we've had in half a year. May the warrior defend him, and the red priest too. They moved on to a burned-out sept to find an elderly septon who warns them about marauders who came by and sacked this sept. They even pried the pearls out of the mother statue. I, I, I know what you're thinking, and so does George. Lem asks if it was the Bloody Mummers, but it isn't. It was Northmen. They were in search of Jamie Lannister. Arya heard him and chewed her lip. She could feel Gendry looking at her. It made her angry and ashamed. The small folk live in the vault under the sept, but they don't know where Beric is. Even the guy with the armor who has a crude lightning paint on his cloak. Greenbeard tells Arya that Beric is everywhere and nowhere. Arya says she'll be a woman soon as she's 11 now and Greenbeard threatens to marry her. Later, Lem and Gendry play a game. Tom sings a song and Arya tries to pull Angai's longbow, but she doesn't have the strength to pull the bowstring. Angai says he'll try to find some seasoned wood at River Run to make her a lighter bow. Thomas Seven says that they will not have time to get that good wood. They're going to get a ransom for Arya. Besides, Hoster Tully, the Lord of Riverrun, hangs outlaws and his son hates music. How could he? No, Edmure doesn't hate music, dude. He hates Tom for the song he wrote, The Floppy Fish, a song very much not about Edmure's whiskey dick. Arya didn't care what Tom's stupid songs were about. She turned to Harwin. What did he mean about ransom? We have sore need of horses, milady. Armor as well. Swords, shields, spears. All the things coin can buy. Aye, and seed for planting. Winter is coming, remember. He touched her under the chin. You will not be the first highborn captain we've ransomed. Nor the last, I'd hoped. That much was true, Arya knew. Knights were captured and ransomed all the time. And sometimes women were too. But what if Rob won't pay their price? She wasn't a famous knight, and kings were supposed to put the realm before their sisters. And her lady mother, what, what would she say? Would, would she still want her back after all the things she'd done? Arya chewed her lip and wondered. The party moves out for High Heart, a hill high with a clump of 31 werewood stumps in the middle of it. Thomas Seven says the High Heart was a magical place once and sacred to the children of the forest. They're going to bed down for the night and won't come to harm. But Arya finds herself strangely scared of this place. Her fear is there despite the fact that she played monsters and mains in the crypts of Winterfell with all the dead bodies and shit. That night, Arya wakes when the wind blows her blanket off. She chases after the blanket into the bushes and then hears voices. Besides the embers of their campfire, she saw Tom, Lem, and Greenbeard talking to a tiny little woman, a foot shorter than Arya and older than old Dan all stooped and wrinkled and leaning on a gnarled black cane. Her white hair was so long it came almost to the ground. When the wind gusted, it blew her head in a fine, 
When the wind gusted, it blew about her head in a fine cloud. Her flesh was whiter, the color of milk, and it seemed to Arya that her eyes were red, though it was hard to tell from the bushes. The old gods stir and will not let me sleep, she heard the old woman say. I dreamt I saw a shadow with a burning heart butchering a golden stag. I, I dreamed of a man without a face waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung. On his shoulder perched a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings. I dreamt of a roaring river and a woman that was a fish. Dead, she drifted with red eyes on her cheeks. But when her eyes had opened, oh, I woke from terror. All this I dreamt and more. Do you have gifts for me to pay me for my dreams? Dreams, grumbled Lemlem. What good are dreams? Fish women and drowned crows. I had a dream myself last night. I was kissing this tavern wench I used to know. Are you going to pay me for that old woman? Well, no, because the woman reports that the Blem's woman is dead, and now she wants her song from Thomas Evans. So Tom plays a sad song that Arya sort of remembers. She thinks Sansa would absolutely know it, though. The next day, the woman is gone, and Arya asks Tom about her. Was she, you know, a child of the forest? No, no, just an old dwarf woman. But she has power. She knows things and has evil eyes. If she likes the look of a person, she'll tell them their future. Does the woman like the look of Tom? Well, no, not his look. She likes his voice. But she always makes Tom sing the same goddamn song. But now they're getting nearer to Thoros and Beric. If you're their men, if you're their men, why, why do they hide from you? Thomas Seven, Tom Seven Strings rolled his eyes to that, but Harwin gave an answer. I wouldn't call it hiding, milady, but it's true. Lord Beric moves about a lot and seldom lets on what his plans are. That way no one can betray him. But now there must be hundreds of us sworn to him, maybe thousands, but it wouldn't do for us to trail behind along behind him. We'd eat the country dry. We'd eat the country bare or get butchered in a battle by some bigger host. That way we're scattered in little bands. We can strike in a dozen places at once and be off somewhere else before they know. And when one of us is caught and put to the question, well, we can't tell them what we don't we can't tell them where to find Lord Barrack, no matter what they do to us. He hesitated. You know what it means to be put to the question. Arya knows about this. Tickling. And they asked the questions of every villager the same questions. The only thing that changed was the method of tickling. Harwin says that Arya should not have to had suffered that, but Beric will set things right. The war began with the quest to bring down Gregor Clegane. It will end when he receives the king's justice. But now they need to mount up and ride for Acorn Hall. They might even get a hot meal and roof if they're quick about it. They ride a long day across the land, but then cross a brook and arrive at Acorn Hall. Lady Small Lord Smallwood is out with Lord Carol Vance and fighting alongside Edward Tully, which would normally mean the castle walls would be closed to them. But Tom, as a friend of Lady Smallwood, was even her lover when they were younger. Engai rides near Arya, telling her stories of the Dornish marches, but Arya's in fold. She knows he's here to keep watching her to make sure she doesn't run. Lady Smallwood welcomed the outlaws kindly enough, though she gave them a tongue lashing for dragging a young girl through the war. She became even more wroth when Lem let slip that Arya was highborn. Who dressed the poor child of these Bolton rags? She demanded them. That batch. There's many a man who would hang her in half a heartbeat for wearing a flayed man on her breast. Arya promptly found herself marched upstairs, forced into a tub and doused with scalding hot water. Lady Smallwood's maidservants scrubbed her so hard it felt like they were flaying her themselves. They even dumped in some stinky sweet stuff that smelled like flowers. Worse still... These people dress Arya in girls' clothes. Lady Smallwood's daughter was down in Old Town with her great aunt, but she had grown up and 
but she's grown up since she left, so the clothes probably won't fit her the way they'd fit Arya now. Smallwood's daughter loves to dance and sing. What's Arya's hobby? Needlework, but not the restful kind. Does Arya practice at needlework? Well, she used to, but her new needle isn't as good as her old one. In times like these, we must all make do as best we can, Lady Smallwood fussed at the bodice of her gown. Now you look like a proper young lady. I'm not a lady, Arya wanted to tell her. I'm a wolf. I, I do not know who you are, child, the woman said. And maybe that's for the best. Someone important, I fear. She smoothed down Arya's collar. In times like these, it is better to be insignificant. Would that I could keep you here with me. That would not be safe, though. I have walls, but too few men to hold them. She sighed. Arya joins the BWB to a simple but good supper, and Greenbeard asks after Beric Dondarrion. Lay Smallwood doesn't just have news of Beric, she saw the man two weeks ago. Thoros and him were herding sheep. In fact, dinner derives from one of those sheep. Tom thinks there could be a song about that, but Lady Smallwood says that Tom's rhymes could use some work. Also, he uses the same song, Oh, lay my sweet lass down in the grass to seduce milkmaids. No, no, Tom's offended by this. No, it was let me drink your beauty, according to Tom. And the milkmaids loved the song. So did a highborn lady once. Lady Smallwood's nostrils flared. The Riverlands are full of maids you pleased, all drinking tansy tea. You'd think a man as old as you would know to spill his seed on their bellies. Men will be calling you Tom's seven sons before much longer. As it happens, said Tom, I passed seven sons many years ago, and fine boys they are too, with voices sweet as nightingales. Plainly, he did not care for the subject. Harwin, his mind on his business, asks where Beric is headed. Smallwood has no idea, but there were others who'd visited Acorn Hall recently, Northmen and they were hunting Jamie Lannister. They demanded Acorn Hall open its gates to them so they could search for Jamie, but she refused them. Arya asked who the Northmen were, and Lady Smallwood reports that they didn't give their names, but they had a white sunburst sigil. Arya knows those are Karstarks, and she wonders whether she could escape the outlaws and link up with the Karstarks to get back to River Run. Catching back up in the conversation, Lem asks how Jamie escaped. Well, according to the Karstarks, it was Catelyn who did it. That startled Tom so badly he snapped his string. Go on with you, he said. That's madness. It's not true, thought Arya. It couldn't be true. I thought the same, said Lady Smallwood. That was when Harwin remembered Arya. Such talk is not for your ears, my lady. No, I want to hear. But the outlaws insist that Arya leave. So she heads out to the yard, angry at the lies being told. Gendry follows her. He asks if Arya wants to see the smithy with him. Sure, she guesses. While walking, Gendry asks if Thoros was the same Thoros from King's Landing. Arya thinks so, but she doesn't know for certain. Thoros was a friend of Jalabar Zo and Roberts. Gendry says he knows Thoros because the man had come to their forge for swords for their melees. He never used good steel, though, just the, te just the cheap shit to light on fire with wildfire. Arya says that Thoros isn't very priestly, and Gendry agrees. Thoros' reputation rested on the fact that he could outdrink Robert. Arya thinks that Gendry is being unfair about Robert drinking so much, but Gendry defends himself by saying he was talking about Thoros. All Thoros ever liked was feasts and tourneys, but he did fight through the breach at Pike with a flaming sword that one time. Arya finishes, Arya wishes that she had a flaming sword to light people on fire, which, um, not super healthy thought pattern there, Arya, but Gendry says it's only a trick. It ruins the steel. But Gendry was just about to make his first sword until Yorn showed up to take Gendry away. You could... You, you can still make swords if you want, said Arya. You can make them for my brother Rob when we get to River Run. River Run? 
Gendry put the hammer down and looked after her. You look different now, like a proper little girl. I look like an oak tree with all these stupid acorns. Nice, though. A nice oak tree. Gendry stepped closer and sniffed at her. You even smell nice for a change. Arya says that Gendry stinks, and she shoves him before trying to run. Gendry grabs her arm, and they trip over each other's feet before tumbling around on the floor of the smithy, which is not a sex reference yet. In the process, Arya rips her dress and tells Gendry that she doesn't look so nice now, does she? Arya and Gendry return to the hall to find Tom a seven singing. My feather bed is deep and soft, and there will lay you down. I'll dress you all in yellow silk and on your head a crown. For you shall be my lady love, and I shall be your lord. I'll always keep you warm and safe and guard you with my sword. Harwin and Angai think it's funny that Arya is covered in straw and has her dress ripped, but Lem gives Gendry a clout for fighting a girl. But Arya says, no, don't hit him. She started it. Gendry was just talking. Tom winked at her as he sang. And how she smiled and how she left the maiden of the tree. She spun away and said to him, no feather bed for me. I'll wear a gown of golden leaves and bind my hair with grass. And you, but you could be my forest love and be your forest lass. I have no count of leaves, said Lady Small with a, with a small, fond smile. But Karelin left some other dresses that might serve. Come, child, let's go upstairs and see what we can find. Arya gets another bath and another comb of hair, and she gets a dress with little baby pearls on it. She also gets breeches, belt, tunic, and a jerkin with iron studs. They were my son's things, she said. He died when when he was seven. I, I, I'm sorry, my lady. Arya suddenly felt bad for her and ashamed. I'm sorry I tore the acorn dress, too. It, it was pretty. Yes, child. And so are you. Be brave. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Arya 4. Is it wrong to say that I'm happy to be into the real action of Arya's A Storm of Swords chapters? Because I am, and I ain't sorry. Great chapter. What did you think, sir? Yeah, there wasn't too much happening in Arya's first three chapters in Storm, which is why we did them all in one episode. And this is kind of the inverse. One episode on a chapter that feels like a bunch of smaller ones put together. For me, I think Arya 4 is the best of Arya's early, Arya's early chapters in this book, before Beric Dondarrion turns up in the flesh. It's so immersive. Every place Arya visits feels real, like it existed before she showed up and will be there after she's gone. The dialogue feels very grounded, too, as people just trying to survive the war eke out what happiness they can find in each other's company. This is really where we start to understand the Brotherhood Without Banners, as individuals and as a group developing a presence in the Riverlands. And that's relevant to Arya's character arc, because she too is trying to remake her identity on the fly. Whose banner is she going to fly? Maybe none. After all, she's on her way to spending a lot of time as no one. What did you think of the chapter, sir? I, like I said, I liked it a lot. The great thing about Arya's Storm of Swords chapters is how it really gets deep into what it means to resist. Now... Not the dumbass hashtag resist ship of, hype, of hyper online adjuncts of the Democratic Party of the Trump years. <laughs> More like how to choose the people as a side and thus resist all powers. Now, I've been rewatching The Expanse and you were telling me before we came on air that you were started to read the books of The Expanse series, which I'm very excited about talking to you more about. And I love the Holden line from season one. And it might be in Leviathan Wakes, but I don't remember it off the top of my head. When he, when Holden is confronted over his allegiance, is he allied to Earth or Mars or to the belt? And he says, I stopped playing. 
We see what I Stop Playing means here in Aria 4, with the Brother Without Banners refusing to fight for the North or the West. And it's interesting, there's not any actual fighting in this chapter. We'll see the actual fighting a few Aria chapters from now, but the resistance here that we see is different. The people Arya encounters are resisting the directive to just become cogs in the war, or the more dire, the more dire version of that, which is just to fucking die. The resistance seen in Arya Four, I think, is that of survival. Agreed. And uh, yeah, reading through the expanse, I'm I'm reading through the fourth book now, and one character says in the fourth book, while he's trying to get his daughter to safety, that he'd he'd gotten her to safety, temporary. But it was always temporary, and that's how I how I feel about the the mood of the characters in this chapter. They're just trying to create these these little oases and just stay ahead of, of death and violence as best they can for as long as they can. And like Jamie three, the last chapter we covered, Arya four moves quickly. It has a different tone though. Jamie three was all about dread, as one twist after another made everything worse. Arya four has a mixture of moods, not because of plot twists, but changing locations. The tone is funny, or melancholy, or spooky, depending on where Arya and the Brotherhood are, and who they're talking to. Each little scene stands on its own, but taken together they form a kind of sociological thesis, a broad cross-section of society brought into the light. The war is a constant, but it's a structuring absence. We see what it leaves behind, the mark it makes on people of different ages, religions, and class backgrounds. The other constant is the Brotherhood itself. They're the glue, just barely holding the Riverlands together, giving people a sense of cohesion, a lingering feeling of being more than the sum of their parts. The Brotherhood is almost like a civic religion, giving meaning to Westeros. And that's a difficult job. We see throughout this chapter that the Brotherhood and the people they protect are in constant danger, hiding out or keeping a day or two ahead of their enemies. And they just have so many enemies. They're spinning dishes in the air. They're making a mosaic out of countless pieces of broken glass. It's exhausting, and it's messy. Notably missing from the Brotherhood is an endgame for their campaign. There's no Bastille to break into, right? There's no General de Gaulle to link up with. <laughs> the Brotherhood never marches on the seat of power like the Sparrows do in A Feast for Crows. Beric says that the war will end when he completes his original mission by killing Gregor. But that's a poetic, symbolic statement. It's not literally true. Like, if Beric killed Gregor, everyone was going to lay down their arms. That's not going to happen. The Brotherhood's king, as Beric declares, is Robert. And Robert's dead. <laughs> that is ideologically advantageous in that Robert can't disappoint them. Like, the Brotherhood's authenticity is rooted in being willing to resist any living king. But that's also politically fatal because it means there's no peace to be made. There's no bar they can reach. Either Tywin wins or Rob wins. And either way, that means someone who's paying the bloody mummers wins. What would the Brotherhood winning look like? I think this is it. It's just day-to-day -day survival. And there is an inherent dignity to that, a weather-beaten heroism worthy of song, even if in the end it's a losing battle. As Galadriel says in Lord of the Rings, a long defeat. I love that line from Galadriel, and I, and I do love the point that you're making. You know, Robert's kind of like that absent father figure who's not there and suddenly like, well, if only my real dad were here, things would be so much better because he could never disappoint because he's just simply absent. In this case, he is dead. And I do think it's a really smart point too, that the BWB are really good at accumulating support during the war itself because of how both sides are conducting themselves with the civilian population. Now, 
both sidesism gets a bad rap because it often serves in modern political context to legitimize violence and authoritarianism. But in the case of the small folk faced with the combatants in the War of the Five Kings, I do think both sidesism, so to speak, applies. Rob Stark isn't personally killing small folk or savaging the land, but the guys who work for him, Bruce, the Bloody Mumbers, and the people who used to work for him, the Car Starks, are acting similarly to Tywin's Ravagers. And Rob, as personally honorable and noble as he is, is not fighting in the War of the Five Kings to feed the small folk, protect them from the depredations of war, or to promote liberties for the small folk or uplifting them from serfdom. He's fighting to avenge the injustice done to his father and keep the North and Riverlands free from the Iron Throne. I personally find at least those motivations sympathetic and even supportable, but I understand why the small folk don't give a damn about that. When you're in the crosshairs and targets for both sides, it's sympathetic not to pick a side or to choose a side that isn't invested in the geopolitics of the realm. Many of the small folk turn to to the Brotherhood as their cause in the War of the Five Kings. These are the people who are actually defending the small folk, actually caring about them, actually feeding them, driving sheep around. Jorama talked about how the small folk just want to be left alone when the High Lords play their Game of Thrones, but they never are. Throughout this chapter, we don't encounter any warriors beyond the ones that Arya is traveling with. Instead, we see people who want to be left alone in the war, who want to survive the war, and the Brotherhood present the best option for that. It's interesting that the cause is simply survival. Though there will be a religious component that will spring out of this comma feast for crows in the form of the sparrows, Thoros isn't spreading the word of R'hllor here, just survival. That's his gospel. Like you said, there's a romance to that. Simply defend the people Robin Hood and Mary Ben style from the nobility. Still, there's a limitation in the War of the Five Kings in both sides. You're absolutely right that someone is going to win this war, and at some point the depredations that war imposes on the land and people will cease. And while Lord Goodbrook's village or Tarbeck Hall will never be rebuilt, the land and the people will recover, in some sense. So the Brotherhood don't have an agenda for after the war. They don't have a set of principles to advocate towards after the fighting is done. And even if Beric Dondarrion can kill Gregor Clegane and end his brutality, there will be a thousand steel steel shanks Waltons who will go home and raise the next generation for the next war. And you can see George playing with that, that sense of decay in the opening scene of this chapter. Leicester's keep is a ruin, he writes, and so is its lord. George is linking the land and the lord together, Fisher King style, showing us the fall of Westeros as both physical and psychological. And crucially, neither fall at Leicester is due to the War of Five Kings. The castle has just fallen into disrepair, and the lord has been robbed of his faculties by age. Time gets away from us, no matter what we do. According to Lem, Lord Leicester's ailing mental state is also a result of grief. He lost his sons in the war. No, not this war, but the last one, Robert's Rebellion. You were talking so well in our last episode about how Jamie is still psychologically stuck in the Robert's Rebellion era. So many people in Westeros are. Lord Leicester shows us that stagnation in its simplest and plainest form. You die young, or you live to face the horror of aging. Lord Leicester has retreated from both into the glorious past. All he talks about is holding the bridge against Sir Maynard. What bridge? Might be the one outside, Jack B. Lucky says. It's the only bridge in sight. But maybe there were other bridges back in Lord Lord Leicester's glory days. They can't be sure. Who was Sir Maynard? Why was he trying to take the castle? When did this even happen? We don't know, and we never will. I doubt Lord Leicester himself remembers the context, only the event itself. The context is too painful, because the context is death. Entropy, the end of hope. 
Winter has come for Lord Leicester, and spring will never come again. What Beric Dondarrion offers is an antidote to despair, a reason to keep going, one step after another, just like Sam after the zombie attack. I think it's a great comparison, and I think you bring up an excellent point about the bridge, because we do know from the last Jamie chapter that there are a number of burned out bridges that used to be in charge of, uh, that used to exist in the Riverlands that are now currently gone. Do we know if this is the bridge that Leicester held against her manor? We will never know, as you said, but there could be other bridges as well, war and time has swept all of those away, as well as the river, I'm assuming. And I think when we're talking about a little bit more about Beric, Beric is less of a man and more of a symbol of resistance in this chapter, a hope that keeps the small folk alive. It's kind of somewhat similar to how Renly embodies chivalry to the men and women of the Reach and Stormlands, as we saw back in A Clash of Kings, Catelyn too. It's how Rob, as the young wolf, works as a symbol of resistance to the Lannisters among the Northmen. The reality of these men is different from what they represent, which I find so fascinating, and I love that in George's writing. But we can't deny the power of symbols and the power of stories and inspiring people to follow a man or a cause. The Leicester Maester has heard that Beric is dead. The Brotherhood reassures him that Beric lives. On reread, we know that both are true. Beric lives, Beric dies, Beric is born again. He embodies the resurrection of the land, the possibility of fertility. He's a dream of spring. Even before we know that Beric can literally come back from the dead, though, yeah, we see how he works as a story. No different from the story Lord Leicester tells himself over and over. Stories are the true immortality. That's what Thomas Evanstreams thinks. And of course he does. He's a singer. He's got a romantic attachment to the power of storytelling. He says that Lord Leicester should have commissioned a song, maybe from Tom himself, about the fight at the bridge with Sir Maynard. Then everyone would know who he had been and why he had come. Then the past would carry weight, emotional resonance. It would mean more than the last trickle of cognition in the mind of a sad old man approaching the end. Lem Lemoncloak occupies the opposite end of the spectrum, arguing that singing about the past doesn't change the material facts of what happened. And I think both have a point, reflecting the conflict in the author's own heart. Lem is like Sandor talking to Sansa about story as a ribbon tied around a sword, or Jamie mocking the song of Florian and Jonquil at Maidenpool. They all argue that the songs are propaganda. They're not wrong. When Tom says a song about Leicester versus Sir Maynard would preserve the truth about what happened, he is overlooking the distortion inherent to narrative. The songs about the Battle of Blackwater are all about Renly's ghost. Stories tell us the Bard's truth, and it's dangerous to conflate that with the real thing. But that's not to say the Bard's truth is meaningless. It gives us a reason to keep going in the face of things falling apart. That's what Beric gives people. Inspiration to try and make the songs real. Beric himself, of course, doesn't show up in this chapter. He's a structuring absence, like the war. Instead, we meet people like Leicester's maester, who seemingly runs the castle as his lord fails, and he has allied himself with the Brotherhood. That network of mutual aid is a real thing that can materially help people, and yet it's sustained in part by fiction, which is a contradiction I think we all live with in one form or another. And it's sustained by this memory, this aspect of memory that George loves to talk about here. Lord Leicester's memory of holding the bridge against Sir Maynard is how old age airbrushes the rough, hard edges of life and smooths memory down to something worth remembering, worth even talking about. George, I think one of the things I've just loved in this, this reread that I've been doing with you, sir, is all of the work that George puts into foc into focusing the power on the power of nostalgia and the dangers inherent in nostalgia in A Song of Ice and Fire. Leicester's age is so great that he only recalls the one event worth nostalgizing over. It's 
awfully sad about his sons dying in Robert's Rebellion, but Leicester can't remember that. It's almost like he didn't want to remember that. And in his old age, his mind can only dwell on the only thing that he feels is worth remembering. I think with Leicester, we're seeing the ultimate poisoning of nostalgia, where it's not simply that the character has a hallowed view of the past, there's a hallowed view of the past. It's that all he can remember is the one hallowed event at the expense of everything else, to include his dead, departed sons. And that same mixture of fantasy and realism is at work with the Brotherhood's next stop, visiting the Lady of the Leaves. On one hand, this is one of the most fairy tale settings in the whole story. A village in the trees with ladders descending from the branches. It's equal parts Lothlorien from Lord of the Rings, and like you were saying, Star Wars. It's the uh, Kashyyyk with the Wookiees, or the Ewok village in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> and this troupe is rooted in imagination. It's more meant to project the, the idea of an indigenous people than I think it is to accurately reflect anything in the real world. After all, how long have these villagers been up here? Was this whimsical tree town something that existed before the war? How do they get food and water? How do they keep from being overheard? It's hard to reconcile this enchanted free zone with the fate of our first POV, Will, sent to the wall for killing one of the Malister's bucks in the Malister's woods. Westerosi politics is a zero-sum land grab. Someone owns this territory, and I do think it's it's a little it takes a little suspension of disbelief to accept that this village has just kind of existed undisturbed. Even the name Lady of the Leaves, it sounds like something you'd write in flowing script for a story, rather than say out loud to an actual person. George puts this fantasy space into context by acknowledging that it's temporary. The Lady of the Leaves admits they'll have to leave soon, because winter is coming. Doom is inevitable, even if none of the soldiers spy them out. It's the same sad song we heard at the Leicester Keep, where time and grief take their toll, even without the War of Five Kings. So once again, the people here depend on the idea of Beric Dondarrion. They heard stories that he was dead, leading them to despair. Now they hear from the Brotherhood that he lives, and it leads them back to hope, even with no material change to their desperate circumstances. That applies to the Brotherhood themselves, as well as the people they're visiting. We will learn later in the book that Lem refuses to recognize that Beric is being returned from the dead by Thoros. What these people need isn't the truth. They need something to believe in. That fills not only a political void, but a spiritual one. I love the moment when the Lady of the Leaves prays for both R'hllor and the warrior to protect Beric. Strictly speaking, this <laughs> doesn't make sense. As Melisandre tells us, the faith of R'hllor preaches that there are only two gods. R'hllor, who is good, and the Great Other, who is evil. And all other gods beside R'hllor are versions of the Great Other. The seven, she says, are in truth the face of the enemy. So why would these enemies both support Beric? <laughs> But religion as it's being practiced here is not about the finer points of theology and eschatology. It's about shielding yourself from the fall. It's the flip side of both sides employing the bloody mummers and preying on defenseless civilians. If the political distinctions can be blurred for the worse, why can't spiritual distinctions be blurred for the better? The faith on its own hasn't defended these people, so they believe in Barak instead. Ironically, they do so without knowing that he's literally magic, that he literally has divine powers. And I think it's such a great dynamic that we have the legend of Beric Dondarrion as the warrior spreading, whereas the real legend of Beric Dondarrion is shrouded in magic, which is so cool. And I think that line you referenced a moment ago about the warrior and lore protecting Beric, that really struck me too. It's almost like the two gods are with me now. No foe can stand against mm -hmm. two gods, a la Victorian Greyjoy in A Dance mm -hmm. of Dragons. Or, in a historical context, it's Constantine the Great, venerating the Christ and Sol Invictus at the same time. 
Earlier, I talked about how spreading the message of Valor wasn't Thoros or Beric's point in the Riverlands, but you can see the appeal of it here with the small folk. Like early Christianity, the Lord of Light appeals most to slaves, the poor, and to women. Like what, like what the Relore-led BWB is doing, early Christians did work in feeding, clothing, and financially supporting the poor. The Brotherhood are defending the disenfranchised of the Riverlands, refusing to let them die by the sword or die by lag. So Relore seems fairly appealing here. But this is the first time the Riverlands has really ever experienced the Lord of Light, as far as we know. They hold on to their traditional faith of the Seven and intermix it with Relore. But in a really smart stroke, the BWB don't deny their good works to those who don't share their faith. In fact, they work with the clergy of the faith of the Seven. The war is uniting the small folk, some of the nobility, people from the religion, from different religions, all under one banner. Or no banner. One brotherhood. There. That's how we're going to do it. One Brotherhood exactly. without banners. <laughs> One Brotherhood indivisible under which we... Wait a minute. <laughs> and that liminal state of religion in Westeros is emphasized by the Brotherhood's next destination, a sept in the village of Sally Dance. Or rather, the scorched shell of a sept in what remains of Sally Dance. The town's name makes me think of dancing and romance. Those dreams have been replaced with nightmares, as with Jamie at Maidenpool. Once there were beautiful glass windows here. Now, only fragments remain. The statues of the Seven have been vandalized, partially for the value of their adornments, but as the Septon says, the vandals also hacked off the maiden's breasts, which were only made of wood. The overall impression is one of wanton destruction, ruining a place of peace and love for no other reason than to prove that you can. Who did this? Must have been the bloody mummers, right? After all, in Jamie 3, the previous chapter, we just saw Vargo Hote sacking a Sept. Zolo was even prying the eyes out of the statue, exactly as the Septon describes in this chapter. But no, it was Northmen looking for Jamie, so it must have been Rickard Karstark's men. This immediately poses a challenge for Arya. She thinks of the Northmen as her pack, but she keeps being alienated from them. She helped Northmen take over Harrenhal. <clears throat> she helped Northmen take over Harrenhal, but then Roos turned out to be just as bad as the Lannisters. She reunited with Harwin from Winterfell. But he fights for the Brotherhood these days, not her family. And now she hears that Northmen are raiding and reaving across the countryside. How does Arya reconcile her identity, the home and family she's trying so hard to get back to, with her experiences among the people ground up in the gears of the war machine that Rob brought south with him? And now she's not even alone in knowing her shame. Everyone knows who she is. Gendry stares her down, and she can't meet his eyes. In the background of these chapters, Gendry gets radicalized by the Brotherhood. It's perfect timing if you think about it. After Harrenhal, he's angry about the Starks and Lannisters alike crushing his friends. He's increasingly alienated from Arya's real identity. The Brotherhood is the ideal vessel. Again, it's all about the idea of who they are, which transcends any one individual. The first Beric Dondarrion that Arya meets isn't Beric at all. It's just one guy among a dozen others, with nothing to mark him out, but a crude lightning bolt on his cloak. As Greenbeard tells Arya, the Lightning Lord is everywhere and nowhere. That's how Beric operates. He inspires others to be like him. They want to do as he does, rally people to be more together than they could be apart, to resist what's happening to the Riverlands with everything in them. He gives people hope that they don't have to just sit by and decay while the world ends around them. They can hit back, they can defend what's left, and there's a momentum effect. Others will see you doing it, and they'll join in. So some of them literally dress up like Beric, which is also a really smart <laughs> guerrilla strategy because it makes it seem like he's everywhere at once. 
Yeah, it's kind of like an I am Spartacus of a song of ice and fire with so many people mm-hmm. taking on the name and identity of Beric Dondarrion to shield the true man from danger and harm. Again, it reemphasizes the point that Beric is a symbol to keep the people alive and to keep them fighting. But I think there's more to it than just what Beric represents in resisting. There's the willingness to share in his lordly name, title, and sigil to include the small folk in power. If anyone can be Beric Dondarrion, if anyone can bear his sigil and claim his name, why can't the small folk wield power the way the nobility does? As you were saying, you can see why Gendry finds the BWB so appealing. He's been exposed to the nobility of Westeros when he was, apprenti- when he was an apprentice blacksmith. The sigils and brave house words proved less than they appeared in Gendry's interactions with them. But here, there aren't any banners, no house words, just actions that Gendry can look up to. I think Gendry is really interesting and really interesting. Uh, I think Gendry is a really interesting figure here because he witnessed what both the West and the North can do when armed with power. He came along this journey with Arya due to the friendship, probably a little bit more than that, that he felt towards Arya, but he's not in this for any ideological or familial loyalty to the Starks. Gendry is intrigued by the BWB because it allows many to take a knightship, a lordship, regardless of their birth. This helps set up his decision to stay with the Brotherhood later on, but for now, there's some practical reasons why everyone and no one is Beric Dondarrion. George's game of delayed reveals reaches virtuosic heights here, because he is offering an explanation for how it is that everyone keeps hearing that Beric is dead. Oh, it's these other Barracks who are dying. That makes sense. That's internally consistent. And that sounds like it might be a deliberate strategy on Beric's part, which is cold-hearted, but effective. George pulls the same trick with Thoros. Gendry reminds us in this chapter that Thoros is thought of as a charlatan back in King's Landing. His fiery swords are dipped in wildfire, ruining them like the quote-unquote Lightbringer we saw on Dragonstone. And Thoros' main claim to fame was being Robert's drinking buddy. So we're now primed to assume that he is still a fraud. On reread, though, we know this is a gigantic head fake, because Beric is literally getting killed, and Thoros is literally bringing him back from the dead. Which raises an important question. Why keep that a secret? Wouldn't you want to brag that your leader can rise from the grave? Seems like not only a material advantage, but potentially one hell of a propaganda coup. And we never really get a direct answer to that question. Part of it, I think, is that the first time Beric came back was an accident, and Thoros was understandably freaked out by it. <laughs> then they were in the midst of retreating, reforming, keeping their remaining men from deserting, something Harwin talked about in the previous Arya chapter. By the time Thoros had space to think about what had happened, maybe he came to a different conclusion. This is a curse as much as a gift, and it has the potential to terrify people as much as inspire them. Magic is a sword without a hilt, as, as Dala says later in Storm of Swords, and there is no safe way to wield it. I think it's also kind of terrifying that people are returning from the dead here. That just generally mm-hmm. freaks people out. I mean, having reread the resurrection story from the book of John recently, the first reaction that everyone has to Jesus appearing is one of utter fucking terror and horror. What I also wonder is whether it's more inspirational if the small folk think Beric is getting deus ex machina rather than resurrected. Mm-hmm. Given the all too common reality of people being stabbed or hanged during the war, Beric quote unquote, surviving the common means of killing makes him more of a legend. I totally agree. And then when, so when you come back on reread, this like these, these doppelgangers of barracks, this doubling of barrack becomes incredibly poignant because we know that barracks existence has become endless doubling, losing a bit of himself every time he comes back. These men don't even really know what it is they're imitating. And that's a perfect backdrop for Arya's story because she's been changing her identity over and over again as she tries to survive the war. She's been Ari and Weasel. She's been Squab and Nan. Jock and Hagar showed her the end result of all that. Self-annihilation. 
a faceless man existing only to bring death. The many barracks are kind of an inversion of that dynamic. Instead of becoming no one, Barrack has become everyone. Yet that's melancholy as well as inspiring. As Greenbeard says, if he's everywhere, that means he's also nowhere, a legend divorced from the reality of the man himself. So Lem and Greenbeard play tiles with their hosts while Tom sings a silly song. And this isn't incidental. Carving out isolated moments of peace like this might be the best the Brotherhood can do. We're all in this together. Even here, though, the war divides them. Arya's muscles are just too tiny to bend Engai's bow, and he offers to make her a smaller one at Riverrun. They're bonding. Engai can pass on his skills, Arya can learn as she grows up, but it can never be. For the same reason that Harwin is no longer Arya's friend in the way he used to be. They have different interests, and those different interests are rooted in class dynamics exacerbated by the war. As Tom says, they won't be sticking around at Riverrun to do arts and crafts. If they do go there, it will be to ransom Arya, and that's an inherently hostile situation. The Brotherhood will be lucky to escape alive. Hoster hangs outlaws, after all. And I'm sure he considers that to be part of his duty, as Lord Paramount of the Riverlands and keeping the King's peace. But as Harwin said in Arya's last chapter, that world has been turned on its head. The outlaws are the ones trying to protect Hoster's people. From the Brotherhood's perspective, Hoster isn't a kindly grandfather figure offering safety and security, which is what he means to Arya. He's a threat. George emphasizes that later in the book when the Brotherhood takes refuge in, that remains, in the reins of that village that Hoster wiped out in Robert's Rebellion. And George really shows off his tonal range in this scene. We go from a sweet moment with Angai and Arya to Tom's grim reality check. How ironic that the romantic singer is the one to remind us of those practical concerns. And it's kind of the flip from what we saw in the last portion of this chapter where Tom was the idealist and Lem Lemoncloak was the one who was mm-hmm. who was talking about the reality of, of things with Leicester. Engai and Harwin were also dudes who were a part or of or adjacent to the noble class and are likely infused with the mores of the nobility. Whereas Thomas Evans has never participated in a hand's turning or served in the retinue of a great house. And he's had run-ins with the Tullys before and he knows what they're like. So he's the kind of guy, the small folk person who has had encounters with the nobility before that Engai and Harwin probably have never had. And thus that is what is likely infusing and flavoring his perspective on Hoster Tully and Edmure Tully. Yes, the tone then shifts to comedy as Tom admits the other reason he doesn't want to hang out at River Run. Edmure hates his guts. Why? Because Tom happened to be on the scene when Edmure tried to lose his virginity. I say tried because Edmure, being Edmure, drank too much and couldn't get it up. Happens to us all, nothing to be ashamed of. (laughs) But Tom, being Tom, decided to write a song about a floppy fish, aka Edmure's whiskey dick. He immortalized this embarrassing moment for Edmure, making sure that neither he nor anyone else would ever forget it. Not only that, but Tom refuses to admit that that's what he did. He acts like Edmure just irrationally hates music, which is bullshit, and that the floppy fish song wasn't about Edmure anyway, which is some grade-A marbled bullshit. (laughs) Tom is like a stand-up comedian who, when a joke bombs, wants to hide behind the shield of, it's all a joke, why are you taking it so seriously? But wait a minute, Tom. Weren't you just saying that Lord Leicester should have commissioned a song about his duel so the memory would live forever? So much for the romantic power of storytelling. As soon as Tom might be the villain of his own story, as soon as there are real-world consequences for his fantasy make-believe, he disavows his own beliefs. It's funny but revealing to watch him squirm. I think this is a fourth wall-breaking moment in which George talks about the eternal struggle of the artist. What is the relationship between your song and the real world? So often I think we either pretend that there's a one-to-one connection 
or that there's no connection whatsoever. There clearly is such a relationship, but it's so complicated and so dependent on individual circumstances that I think it's impossible to ever define it coherently. Fiction just has one foot in reality and one foot in the imagination. Before the Brotherhood leaves Sally Dance, George switches tones once more, this time tugging on our heartstrings. Arya asks about ransoming her at Riverrun, because this is the first she's hearing about that. Harwin, as the Brotherhood's resident Arya Whisperer, puts it as gently as he can. Like Thoros says in the show, we need weapons, armor, and horses to defend people, and to get those things, you need gold. The Brotherhood can only get so much via paper IOUs. Hard currency still counts if you have enough of it, as we saw with Jamie and Brienne at the end of The Kneeling Man. And I hadn't remembered until this reread how Harwin justifies ransoming Arya with her own house words. Winter is coming, remember? On one hand, that's a, that's a pretty cold-blooded manipulation given that Harwin has left Stark's service. But he is right that the Brotherhood are the ones acting on those words, planting crops for one last harvest while the Lords tear everything up. I think it's an excellent point, and it's a great catch on Harwin's phrase, which I never saw before. What's interesting about this dynamic is that unlike the ransoms we see in Westeros, which help to further bankroll the war effort or recharge exhausted coffers that have been you know, spent through the war, the Brotherhood strategy is to use the hostage exchange for good. I think this is some great filtering into the Brotherhood story. They are going to save as many people as possible by selling a noble girl back to her mom. It's kind of an immoral act, kidnapping a child is immoral, let's say that, for a moral end, feeding the people and continuing the resistance against oppressors. I don't think, though, that George wants us to come up with an easy answer here. I think George is doing what George does best. George being George just poses the question and then gets right back to what he does best, allowing characters to react emotionally to the events and story around them. Yeah, and Arya's response is really interesting. You might think she would resent the Brotherhood, hate them for treating her like a cash cow, or a golden squirrel, as Greenbeard says. After all, Arya ran away from these guys in her last chapter. She doesn't like being imprisoned, and she's starting to get a sore spot about mentors disappointing or abandoning her. But she seems convinced by Harwin's argument, because she is familiar with ransoms. That's part of her class background, the idea that the noble families take each other hostage in war instead of just killing him, instead of just killing each other. She saw that happen at Harrenhal when one of the Freys showed up to ransom a bunch of his cousins. So instead, what Arya is worried about is that she won't be worth a ransom. Those are for important people, lords and knights. Rob might not pay for her. And this is heartbreaking because we know at some level she's right. Rob has struggled with the question of how much to give to get his sisters back, how much they're worth. Even more heartbreaking is Arya's fear that Catelyn might not want her back after all she's done. You just want to reach into the book and hug her. We get Catelyn chapters, so we know that Catelyn is desperate to get her daughters back. The thought of Arya dead causes her immense pain. She described it as like a giant reaching into her chest and squeezing her heart. Hmm. Arya's alienation in part reflects how she did genuinely feel like an outsider in her family back at Winterfell, not playing her role as effectively as Sansa did. But it's also about Arya's guilt over what she has done to survive, who she has become along the way. In her mind, she's built walls between the girl she was at Winterfell and the person who whispers Valar Morghulis. When she gets home, she's going to have to decide who she is. Arya doesn't know if she can cross the gap. Is the pack gone forever? Maybe this is her pack now. Gendry, the Brotherhood, and everyone they meet. I think this part gets me emotionally as well because it reminds me of one of my favorite parables from the Gospels, the prodigal son. 
everyone pretty much knows the parable at this point has become part of the nomenclature of, of modern Americana. But the part this reminds me of in the story is when the prodigal son goes off and wonders if he will be accepted back as his father's son, thinking he would take service as a servant of his father's. The father, though, welcomes the prodigal son back with open arms, and that's what I imagine might have happened with Arya had she been able to return to her mother and brother. When the older brother, though, angrily tells off the father for welcoming the younger brother back, the father replies, It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. That's the state that Arya is in, presumed dead and definitely lost in the wilds away from her family. And there's who Arya is. Is she lost morally? Has she lost her stark identity? Can she return to her mom given everything she's experienced and that she's done? That's never going to happen, though. Arya will get to River Run and come with any hair of reuniting with her mom and brother. So it's, a so it's a natural transition then to have Arya move into explicit foreshadowing of the death of her mom and the rise of Lady Stoneheart. That's a great point. I hadn't thought of that. It, it transitions very naturally into that that uh, sorrowful realm, but also the, the spooky and more mystical realm. Because mm. next up on our tour of the Riverlands is High Heart, which works differently from the rest. It's concerned with magic as much as politics. As we'll see, Beric and Thoros are spiritual figures as well as military ones. Clash of Kings was all about the intertwining of political and magical worlds. That continues for Arya in Storm as she's dealing with both guerrilla movements and wolf dreams, resurrections and red weddings. High Heart is where the two worlds come together for her, like Harrenhal before it. This hill was once home to a sacred weirwood grove, but no longer. As in the song Last of the Giants, men came with fire and axes to remake the world. According to Tom the Romantic, the ghosts of the children of the forest still haunt this place. After all, the Andal who killed them was himself a kinslayer. Must be cursed. But Arya is no more afraid of ghosts here than she was at Harrenhal. As she thinks, she played in the Winterfell crypts as a kid. The dead don't scare her as much as the living. If Highheart is a safe place, it's not because the ghosts of the children protect it, but because it offers a good view of the surrounding area, ensuring that no one can sneak up on you. As usual, George neither confirms nor denies the stories of wonder and terror. The truth is somewhere in between. Stories distort everything over time, but magic persists in forms people don't expect, like Beric and Thoros, or in this case, the ghost of Highheart. The tone becomes spooky and mysterious as she approaches. The wind blows, the hairs on the back of Arya's neck stand up straight. We are, appropriately, in ghost story territory. <laughs> it's something to be told around a campfire. The ghost is less a ghost than a prophet. She's like a witch in one of old Nan's tales. Like the Lorax, she speaks for the trees. The old gods made invisible by the destruction of the Weirwoods, but still there, a splinter in her mind. In political terms, High Heart is where you can see over the land to spot your enemies, as Arya thinks. In magical terms, this place unlocks a different kind of sight, vision across time, into the abstract symbolic space of the gods. The height to easily see your enemies coming from below or high enough to obscure people from seeing what's on top, so to speak. But the magic is where I love the details. The 31 weirwood stumps work as almost a graveyard or gravestones of the magic that once inhabited the land around these parts. But much like the powder within the Ark of the Covenant from, from the first Indiana Jones film that once was the Ten Commandments, the stumps still hold magical power. We know the weirwood trees allow the human eye to see beyond physical sight. And we know that these weirwood stumps here contain great power. They, they focus that power kind of through the ghost. Like Bran in his own dreams, or Danny in the House of the Undying, the ghost sees visions whose meaning she doesn't always understand. 
She and the Brotherhood have to interpret them as we try to interpret what we're reading. George loves his threefold revelation structure, building important plot points around threes, and he puts it to good use here. Like some of the threes in the House of the Undying, the first image is obvious even to the first-time reader. The shadow butchering the golden stag is Melisandre's shadow baby killing Renly back in Clash of Kings. The second image is about to come true, but it won't fully make sense to the reader until A Feast for Crows, or even beyond. Balin Greyjoy falls from a rope bridge in a storm and dies. Here we see the faceless man who kills Balin, accompanied by a drowned crow. This represents Euron Greyjoy, Balin's brother, who ordered the assassination in order to take Balin's crown. He basically confirms that to Aeron in The Forsaken. Euron is a crow because Bloodraven opened his third eye as a child, as with Bran. I think the, the drowned cart that the drowned part, that could maybe refer to Euron's seafaring life as a pirate, or maybe to him being metaphorically drowned in the power of the Weirwood Net. There's some imagery like that in the series where the Weirwood Net is like a sea that you drown inside, mm. like Patchface talking about being under the sea. Euron, I think, is, is being represented here as being lost to that same kind of magical realm that claimed Patchface. I think it's a really great point. And yeah, I think I love how Euron is starting to show up in in the narrative here in, in A Storm of Swords. And, and a quick metadote about Balon's death. This was supposed to be kind of a one to one and a half fold revelation in that the King's Moot was not going to occur on page given that George was planning a five year gap at this time between A Storm of Swords and what he thought was A Dance with Dragons, but what later became A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. The revelation would then be the ghost of the High Heart revealing Balon's death and the confirmation from the captain of the Mirham telling the Northmen that Balon was dead. When George R. Martin later abandoned the five-year gap, we got further unfoldings about Balin's death and Euron's confirmation, the Forsaken, as you were saying, that he was responsible for Balin's death. But it wasn't his hand who slayed, ba who slayed Balon, hence the man with no face who did it. So both of these first two visions are about fratricide and regicide, kings killed by their own brothers. These are keystone images of broken taboos, political power made possible through the use of magic from overseas. These are the moments that haunt Westeros, and so they haunt the Ghost of High Heart. The third image, fitting the structure, is the most important in terms of our POV Arya. It's also about the death of kings, but in a different way. It's the aftermath of the Red Wedding, but where Danny saw Rob's death in the House of the Undying, the ghost sees Catelyn's death here. A woman that was a fish, she says. Well, that's House Tully. That's on their banners. The Red Tears, that's Catelyn gouging her own cheeks after Rob is killed. And we will later learn that the phrase dumped her body into the river, a mockery of Tully funeral rites. The third death, after Renly and Balon. But unlike them, Catelyn comes back. She opens her eyes, and the ghost was so terrified it woke her up. As painful as Catelyn's death will be for Arya, and as painful as Renly and Balon's deaths will be for those who loved them, it's worse to bring them back. This is a warning to her, one that is relevant to the Brotherhood, because Beric is ultimately the one who brings Catelyn back to life. Lem wonders what good these dreams even do, just as he argue that songs don't really make a difference in our lives. And indeed, the ghost has come to trade her dreams for a song. One half-real thing for another. It's a currency of projections and phantoms. We don't learn what song it is yet, but the point is that it's meaningful to her, which is what gives it worth. The people she's grieving are gone, just like the woman Lem says he dreamed about. Only worms kiss her now, as the ghost hisses. The song can't bring them back, any more than the ghost's dreams allow her to change what will be. But the song casts its own spell, makes it seem like the dead are alive again. Lem may make fun of songs, but he's a character in a song, the Song <laughs> of Ice and Fire. This is how we confront death. We pass on stories and visions. 
the marks we leave behind in each other. The chapter then shifts back to the political, as Arya finally asks the implicit question running underneath this chapter. Why do they have to put so much work into finding their own boss? Why is Beric hiding? Harwin lays out the guerrilla logic of George's own Robin Hood and the Merry Men. They're not fighting like Rob, visibly out in front of his army, gathering them together at a specific location for maximum impact. Instead, the Brotherhood is separated into dozens of bands like this one, all endlessly circling each other. They can't win a pitched battle, and by spreading out, they can defend more people and prevent their enemies from wiping them out in one blow. They have speed on their side, and generally the element of surprise. They know the land pretty well too, which never hurts. It doesn't hurt, especially when we're going to see this come a storm of swords Arya 7 when they, the brother destroys a small band of bloody bumbers committing war crimes in a sept. It's killing the despoilers of the land with a thousand small bites rather than the force on force that Rob and Tywin are engaged in in the Riverlands, or rather were engaged in. The brother had hit the supplied lands of the Lannisters too, herring their rear and taking out small bands of foragers that are out and around the countryside. And that's an effective tactic. They know if they mass, they'd get annihilated, but in small groups, they stay alive and unnoticed by large bands of armed men passing through. Saying uh, just, just low enough to ground that the storm passes over you. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting that Harwin also says they would eat the land bare if they all came together. Again, the Brotherhood is proving themselves to be better stewards of the land than the literal lords. Finally, there's military intelligence to consider. If no one knows where Beric is, none of them can give him away, if put to the question. Put to the question, I love how Harwin tries, even now, to shield Arya with euphemisms. But it's too late. She knows all too well what put to the question means. It means torture. She became all too familiar with it as a captive of Gregor Clegane in the last book. So this is a connection between Arya and the Brotherhood, a way for her to fit into the new pack, and an organizing principle for further action. As I said, there is no clear endgame for the Brotherhood, but Harwin, I think, offers a mission statement. No child should be made to suffer that. That's something Beric and Ned would certainly agree on. Still, there's a bittersweet tone to Harwin trying to reassure Arya by telling her the Tickler might be dead. We know on Riri that he's not, and that even when Arya kills him personally, it won't, fit, it won't fill the hole inside her. There's no erasing what she experienced, no evening the scales. As with the Brotherhood in this chapter, all Arya can do is try her best to both do good and survive. Yeah, there's a sense here that what Arya experienced has been the legacy of what the Riverlands has known. This is a full brutalization of a region with many thousands bearing witness to the war crimes rolling across the land. And the results of this brutalization are immense. They're long-lasting. Arya herself has killed two people, not very many people, and most of them not very nice people, to quote the great movie in Bruges. And she's constantly questioning her own identity throughout all of this. But the consequences and reactions don't end with one girl in the Riverlands. The whole region just feels infected with blood. When Arya and the gang reach Stony Sept in the next Arya chapter, they will see the response of the small folk. Where a peacetime Riverlands governed by lords might hang rapists or murderers, the small folk return the favor with the brutality of their own. They hang the Karstark men in crow cages and let them die of exposure and thirst until Arya and Angai show up. What I'm ultimately saying is that George does a realistic job of showing the individual and collective responses to atrocity. For Arya, she will meet up with the tickler at the end of this book, and the result will be one of immense emotional release via stabbing the man over and over again while screaming his questions back at him until freaking Sander Clegane, of all people, pulls her off of him. 
it's a brutal moment and it's so effective because there's a rush of Arya getting back at this horrible guy but then you see that afterwards she's she's just as distraught if not more so and you know i think it's it's a sad truth that suffering doesn't just automatically turn you into a a better and more well-rounded person oftentimes hurt people hurt people and that's something mm-hmm. that Arya has to deal with constantly so far, we've encountered a variety of Brotherhood supporters from many walks of life. A maester, a septon, some villagers, a spooky witch. But the chapter concludes with probably the most powerful Brotherhood ally, Lady Smallwood, one of the more upstanding members of the nobility. Lord Smallwood isn't home. He's fighting for Lord Vance, just emphasizing how many rungs there are on the social ladder under examination in this chapter. Even the people who own castles are working for someone with a bigger castle. <laughs> Maybe it's for the best he's gone, though. Because Lady Smallwood is in charge now, and she lets the Brotherhood in. Angai, who turns out to be quite the gossip, tells Arya that it's because she used to sleep with Tom. But it's clearly more than that. Lady Smallwood also sheltered Beric and Thoros, and is familiar enough with their politics to know that they've probably gone where the hunger is. They were driving a flock of sheep to help feed people, including here, and she approves. She's doing what Lord Mooton at Maidenpool failed to do. And there is something powerful about the idea that only in her husband's absence can she act. Only because of the absences of the war is she able to do this good thing. But that cross-class connection between Tom and Lady Smallwood still matters. It plays into the tension around songs I was mentioning earlier. The relationship clearly went sour, and and Lady Smallwood heavily hints that the reason why is that Tom tries to fuck every single woman he meets. (laughs) So Tom is that guy. The acoustic guitar under the tree kind of guy. He uses the power of his music to drop panties and then runs for it. In defense of Tom, um, it's it's a tried and true method of doing that. <laughs> if it didn't work, he wouldn't be doing it. It's very mm-hmm. true. And un- unfortunately for Lady Smallwood, it seemed to work a little too frequently for her to be around Tom anymore. <laughs> and this is, I think, an amusing reframing of Tom's romanticism. He's allergic to responsibility. And he justifies it through his devotion to his art. I can't take care of people. I'm busy with my songs. In the process, he has left a trail of sons behind. He admits to it, but doesn't like the subject, as Arya thinks. It's too real, the messy truth behind the songs. I love that Lady Smallwood also gets in a dig at Tom's songwriting, calling him a hack who relies on forced rhymes. He's not even good at this. (laughs) And I feel like... I feel like George has met a lot of guys like this at cons, or maybe even been this guy at one point. He's looking at creative professionals without illusions, acknowledging that appeals to beauty can be skin deep. I mean, you, you said cons, and I think that's an excellent, excellent idea. But I think it could also be George's Hollywood experience coming to the fore here. Mm-hmm. Creative souls who used to work primarily for seduction. Or, in this case, it's musicians who are in the industry to pick up girls. I read a few weeks ago a Washington Post like interview and kind of about, about Eric Clapton, where one of his friends says, like, yeah, this guy is not really interested in the politics and like all the, like, the cool stuff that you can write in songs. He was just interested in music because he could pick up girls. Totally understandable because I myself, as a hashtag teen, learned to play the guitar in order to pick up girls. I'm sorry in advance in response. But a boy, but boy. Was I a hack like Tom? Playing and singing brown-eyed girl to someone in the dorms is so cringe and shallow and totally not something that I did in like 2003. Anyways, Tom has used his musicianship to pick up girls, but then he rolls out when there's responsibility to be had. I think that indicates kind of an almost cruelty to Tom, something I never saw before this read. Something we'll see in the peach at Stony Sept when he'll reject the parentage of a boy who is very obviously his son because this boy doesn't have a good voice. But really, 
he's rejected all of his sons, abandoned them to live with their mothers while he goes on singing and fucking. Yet, I have to keep emphasizing this just one more time. It might suck, but it might, it also might still work, even now. I don't know. Might still work. It's, it's pretty timeless, unfortunately. And it cuts across, I think, classes too. Like, this is how Robert acted as well. Like, you know, that's what, something that connects Robert and Tom. And all of this is relevant to a chapter in which everyone's talking about Beric Dondarrion without us ever getting to see him. The rumor, the song, is all we get. The Brotherhood keeps itself intact via a projected sense of self. The question of identity, as it's created, practiced, and reinforced, also ties into Lady Smallwood's main role in this chapter, a new mother for Arya. Arya is a highborn girl. But most of her mentor figures are men, born outside the nobility. And this is a deliberate move on George's part, as probing class and gender borders is a big part of what he's doing with Arya's story. This is an exception to that rule, when Arya comes face to face with another highborn woman, the kind of person she could have been if left in peace to grow up in Winterfell. And I can easily imagine Arya married to a nobleman who rides off to war, and she responds by teaming up with a peasant guerrilla movement behind his back. <laughs> it seems like that would be very in character for Arya. Mm -hmm. The difference between these two is their relationship to gender. Lady Smallwood believes, her, Lady Smallwood believes herself to be saving Arya from the unladylike mess of the Brotherhood, as well as, as well as observing hygiene and social norms. But for Arya, this is an indignity that cuts her off from her own body and reminds her of the powerlessness she experienced at Harrenhal. Look how George writes it. Arya, quote, found herself, marched upstairs. Found herself. It's a thing happening to her over which she had no control. The tub is scalding hot. They're scrubbing her so hard it's as if she's being flayed. This isn't a realistic detached observation. This is Arya on the verge of a traumatic flashback, like she's suddenly back in Roose Bolton's clutches. And then they insist on dressing her in girls' clothes, the kind of clothes she never liked. Arya is trying so hard to hold on to a bit of herself, and now they're turning her into the person she never wanted to be. That's exactly right. This emphasizes that hybrid women have better standards of living, but they're still enslaved to the gender roles enforced upon them. Remember when Ned told Arya that she would marry a lord and be a lady of the castle? She didn't want it back then in A Game of Thrones. That was Sansa's role. That's not what she wants. Yet here she's being forced back into the role that she's rejected. The point for me is not that bathing and wearing pretty clothes is bad. The bathing thing is quite good, even healthy. The point is that Arya doesn't want this identity. Not, at least not yet. At least, if not yet ever. But she can't escape being forced back into the role by someone who really, truly does mean well. Agreed. It's not like I think there's uh, an... Uh objective standard that Lady Smallwood and Ari is failing to meet. It's it's about clashing sensibilities and how you bring them together. You can see Lady Smallwood operating with the best of intentions, naught but kindness in her heart. And she is 100% right that Arya should stop wearing clothes with a Bolton sigil, just for her own safety on the road. And I love how she tries to engage Arya in conversation. It doesn't go as you might expect. They don't fully connect, but neither do they come into conflict. Lady Smallwood asks Arya what she likes to do. Something no one's really bothered to do since she parted from Jon Snow. She's been on the run or forced into labor. What she wants out of life has been filtered through the demands of her situation. She wants freedom and family and revenge. Hobbies are kind of beside the point right now. Then again, as we saw at Sally Dance when they were playing tiles and singing songs, being at rest, doing things just for the fun of it, that's what peace looks like. And that's what these people are really fighting for. So Arya tries to cross the gap. Not only between her and Lady Smallwood, but between her and her younger self. Arya says she likes needlework. 
As when she named her sword Needle, she's ironically contra- she's ironically contrasting her swordplay with the sewing, favored by Sansa and Catelyn and so on. I'm not a proper young lady, Arya thinks. I'm a wolf. I belong out in the wild, like in my dreams, in my element, like at the beginning of the book. As she thinks, I can't sing prettily like Sansa. I can only shout the words. Lady Smallwood does needlework to relax. Not the way I do it, Arya says. She does it to work out her rage. But Lady Smallwood doesn't catch the double meaning. And she says, there's no wrong way to do it. We're all gifted in our own way. And every act is a prayer, if it's done with sincerity and pride. Even as Lady Smallwood reinforces gender norms over Arya's objections, she inadvertently gives her a way of thinking about herself that could help. Instead of thinking about the right way to be and the wrong way to be, think about what you can do, how you can help. Any act can be a prayer, which ties perfectly into Arya's kill list as a sort of prayer, and of course her religious service with the Faceless Men. Lady Smallwood is a mother surrogate for Arya, like how first Brienne and now Jane Westerling have become daughter surrogates for Catelyn. So it follows beautifully that while staying at Castle Smallwood, Arya has to reckon with what her real mother has been up to. Lady Smallwood mentions the Northmen hunting for Jaime. Arya deciphers the sigil she describes and knows that they're Karstarks. That's Arya's northern self coming back to the fore, and she thinks maybe they could help her get back to her mother. But then she learns Catelyn freed Jaime. The Brotherhood don't believe it any more than she does at first. Tom is so shocked he even snaps one of his strings, the song literally breaking, the narrative changing. Then Harwin kicks Arya out of the room, because she's a Stark. So she's in the worst of both worlds, right? Her name is only ever a burden for her. It's never a relief. She's left alone with Gendry, who kind of has the opposite problem. His parentage is so secret that even he doesn't know who he is. (laughs) And I gotta love the irony when Gendry badmouths Robert as a drunkard. Arya is dealing with her disappointing parents, and so is Gendry without even knowing it. The hidden prince as a pauper, the princess disguised on the run with a band of heroic rebels. Like the tales of Robin Hood, as we keep saying, it's incurably romantic. And while Arya might hate her new clothes and new fragrances because it defines her in gender terms she doesn't connect with, Gendry is interested for the same reason. He sees Arya as female in a way he didn't before. Hmm. Arya, of course, liked watching Gendry's muscles at work in the forge at Harrenhal, and hey, now here they are in another forge. (laughs) They're too old to ignore these feelings, but they're not old enough to know what to do about them. So like a lot of people their age in that in-between state, what they do is fight about it. And I love this because it's exactly what happened with Jamie and Brienne in the previous chapter. They got their feelings out through fighting. Even adults don't always deal with this stuff well. What's funny about this is this is how Arya reclaims her gender identity. She, ru- she ruins the clothes and gets herself all sweaty because that feels like her authentic self. Yet she only got there because Gendry got interested in her new look. Is there a way to integrate all of this? Lady Smallwood forces Arya through another bathing and dressing regimen, but her new dress is too delicate to ride in. So she has to wear boys' clothing over it. Breeches, belt, tunic, jerkin. Two genders, two selves, made into one. The dresses were from Lady Smallwood's daughter, sent to Old Town for her safety, and the boys' clothes belonged to her son, who died at age seven. And the full weight settles on Arya. She's not only wearing these kids' clothes, she's taken their places, yet another identity. Now Lady Smallwood doesn't seem like another jailer keeping Arya in her place. She's lost people, like Arya has lost people. And we've come full circle. This chapter started with Lord Leicester broken by grief, and now it ends with Lady Smallwood's grief. In both cases, the losses came outside the War of Five Kings, 
Lord Leicester lost his sons in Robert's Rebellion. Lady Smallwood lost her son when he was only seven. This is a part of nature that the war just makes worse. What do we owe each other in the face of that? Arya apologizes to Lady Smallwood for ripping the dress. Not because she now feels obligated to wear those clothes, but because she understands that Lady Smallwood has her own history and her own pain to respect. The dress is just going to mean different things to each of them. It's a rapport between two worlds that Arya thought were permanently alienated, divided like her. And Lady Smallwood forgives her, telling her she's pretty like the dress. And not only that, but brave. You can be both. There's no contradiction. This is the conversation that Arya never got to have with Catelyn, and that Lady Smallwood isn't getting to have with her own daughter. The imagery of acorns and trees with the dress and how Smallwood connects us back to the heart tree at Winterfell, and the one at Harrenhal that spoke to her with Ned's voice. But it also speaks to roots and beginnings. Arya is an acorn. She's someone with a lot still ahead of her in life. Lady Smallwood is giving it all for people like her, as are Beric and Thoros, which we will see in Arya chapters to come. It's something I'm very excited about getting to those Barak and Thoros interactions that we're going to see in Arya 6 and beyond. And yeah, Lady Smallwood is a character that I, I love a lot. I think that she is complex and I think George does a wonderful job of making this one chapter character who appears in only the last third of the chapter feel real and also feel meaningful to Arya Stark. Arya has been in a position where she has been apart from a mother figure since really the start of the story, she's only had a few women in her life, and those women have been less than motherly towards her, less than familial even. Lady Smallwood kind of represents that mother figure returning back to Arya and giving her the care and love that she deserves as a child and deserves as a, as a human being more than anything else. And I, I think that's what makes Lady Smallwood so compelling is that despite all of the shit that's happening around her, despite all of the other lords who are either playing in the Game of Thrones or shutting their gates to the small folk, Lady Smallwood is giving her all for her people, and not just for her people that are within the confines of her lands, but for those who are fighting on behalf of those, for those who are fighting on behalf of the small folk throughout the Riverlands. I think that's a wonderful testament to to this small, small one-note character. It is kind of sad to be not. I mean, obviously, it's sad that that uh, Lady Smallwood's daughter is has dot. It is kind of sad to me that Lady Smallwood's son died, and that is that is a moment that is going to stay with with kind of with with Arya, and I think with with readers as well. It's also sad too is that her daughter is in freaking Old Town, which of course, as we know from Emmett's excellent observations about Euron Greyjoy's story, is quite literally the crosshairs of Euron Greyjoy come the Winds Winter and beyond. Yeah, unfortunately, there might be more grief coming Lady Smallwood's way, just as just as there is for Arya. If only if only this was rock bottom, but there's there's still worse to come for for everyone involved. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, one of my favorite little bits of payoff in the whole story is when George brings back this story about Tom singing about Edmure's failure to get it up. When we get to Jamie at River Run in the Feast for Crows, and he's gotten Edmure down from the gallows and is talking to him in his tent about the need to surrender the castle. And then just to convince him, he has Tom come in to play the reins of casting because Tom is hanging around. And Edmure sees him and goes, no, no, absolutely not him. Get him the hell out. Which doesn't make any sense unless you remember this little moment. And that's that's just a wonderful bit of storytelling, I think. Uh, I think it's hilarious, right? Because Jamie thinks that he's intimidating, you know, Edmure by playing the reins of Castamere. But really what Edmure is intimidated of is the fact that the floppy fish is about, could be potentially be played here. The guy that wrote the floppy fish is in the tent with him. It is the worst kind of being confronted with by your high school bully, like when you're in your 20s and 30s yep. and yep. still around and still the same type of guy that you knew back 10, 15 years of the past. 
That is, that is just a hysterical bit, and that, that might pay off uh, with the shenanigans regarding the Brotherhood and the, and the Red Wedding 2.0. But even even in the context of Feast for Crows, it's just a very funny moment that I love. Hmm. Another bit of foreshadowing here. George stops, George stops this chapter dead to remind us that the Tickler's entire romantry takes us through the, is there gold in the village, silver, gems, where is Lord Beric Tondarian? Everything that Tickler said to his victims. So we'll have it in our mind when Arya yells at Adam while killing him near the end of the book. As you were saying earlier, there's that great ironic reversal where Arya yells the mantra to the tickler just to get him back as she kills him. So I think that's that's why we get it in this chapter. George is thinking, I want to make sure the reader remembers that so that when Arya is yelling at the tickler, it doesn't just come off as nonsense or a non sequitur. So now we have these words back in our mind. And, and you know, I think George does a great job of displaying how violence is corrupting and how violence does this does has an Im- impeccable is the wrong word has this intrinsic relationship to memory where like mm-hmm. you remember that brutal moment that you saw daria remembers so strongly the tickler torturing people it throughout the riverlands and the march up to heron hall and it all comes out in this sudden wave of extreme violence and uh, emotional release for the moment but like you were saying so well earlier it doesn't actually lead to an actual true catharsis for aria it does make her feel kind of nihilistic and empty with with all that's that's happened that's that's happening to her even after this this uh, that that moment in the story and i think it's great that george reminds us of, of the words here because we are set up and primed for when that for when the tickler reappears back in the story and Ari realizes, oh no he didn't actually die at the fords he's still alive she has to do something about it in the worst possible way Yep, that's a, that's a, a one of the more bleak and brutal chapters even by song of ice and fire standards that last Arya chapter at the inn very, very, very skeletal and very sad. And Sandor becomes a perfect kind of mentor for shepherding her through that process before she heads off to Bravos. Mm-hmm. So moving into a theory and discussion, this is chapters or introduction to the ghost of Highheart. She will pop up once more later in Storm of Swords, but in the middle of a very another very dense chapter with a lot of things going on that we'll have the opportunity to talk about. So I thought we could talk about it here in this episode about who is the ghost of Highheart, what's her deal, and, and, and what's her backstory. So Arya wonders in this chapter if she might be one of the children of the forest. And it might be that Jenny of Old Stones wondered the same thing. See, if we look back in the backstory, if we uh, look back through World of Ice and Fire and a little bit in Fire and Blood, we know that Jenny knew a woods witch in the Riverlands, one who came with Jenny to court after she married Prince Duncan, son of Aegon V, a.k.a. Egg. And this woods witch prophecy that the prince that was promised would come from the line of Eris and Rayella, the children of Egg's brother, King Jaehaerys II. And he insisted that they marry on that basis. The woods witch was at Summer Hall and was assumed to have died there. And now we have this old woman, short and with unusual eyes, who can see visions, talks about getting enough grief at Summer Hall later in the book, can't get enough of this song that we hear about Jenny. So I think it's a fair conclusion to reach that this that the ghost is the woods witch. And I think it, it, it fits into the setting of High Heart and the melancholy of Beric Dondarrion especially. That magic and mysticism doesn't save you from death in the long run. That's something that the ghost is dealing with as well. So what do you think? Do you think the, the ghost is the woods witch? Not only do I think that she's the wood witch, but I I don't even know if it's tenfold to think that she is actually a child of the forest. One of the things mm-hmm. that's interesting about this chapter is how... The Brotherhood is constantly lying about what happened to Beric Dondarrion, right? He was hanged, but he was cut down. He had his eyes stabbed out, but he survived that because anyone can, stab, can can survive an eye being cut out. What they're doing is they're obscuring magical acts that are happening. Mm. Be like, oh, this is just a natural thing. And so when Arya asks, 
know, Thomas Sevens, whether this woman is actually a child of the forest. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. She's just a, an old dwarf woman that, that is there. Whereas I think that Thomas is obscuring the fact, and perhaps he doesn't know himself, that this woman is actually a child of the forest because she does strongly resemble some of the children of the forest that we meet in later brand chapters in A Dance with Dragons. I think the Ghost of the High Heart has a really interesting backstory too because we can be fairly sure that she had interactions with Rhaegar Targaryen. And we do know that there is... The song that is being sung, Jenny's song, and how Thomas is constantly having to sing that one song to her. What I wonder is whether that was the song that Rhaegar Targaryen played to her when he went and encountered her. And that was the price of the visions and the prophecy that he received from her about the prince that was promised and coming from his line that he played Jenny's song. And so in grief and memory, she has Tom play that same song. Again, it's getting to that really interesting thing that George does in which he talks about what grief and what memory does and how we have these kind of nostalgized versions of what of events from the past. But in this case, it's not necessarily nostalgized. This is a sad woman who has seen what she might think to be the prince that was promised. Because at one point, you know, Barrison talks about how Rhaegar thought of himself as the prince mm-hmm. that was promised. That maybe when she sang the original song to, um, when she sang to Jenny of Oldstones, that maybe she thought that the Rhaegar was the prince that was promised and was mourning the loss of the of the prophesied Messiah figure, without realizing that you know there is another figure in the form of Jon Snow that could be potentially be that person saving the the realm as well as you know Daenerys Targaryen. Um, so those are really interesting factors which I think lead to a really compelling story about the ghost of the of the High Heart. We are going to hear later on in, in later passages in A Song of Ice and Fire that this person still exists. She is apparently still up in the Riverlands and in the High Hills. Uh, we learn that from a Cersei chapter uh, when she's hunting for dwarves um, because that's a Cersei, very Cersei thing to do. Um, as a potential person that she could that might be Tyrion Lannister, what we know is actually probably the ghost of the a ghost of High Heart. I think that she is going to come back into the story as well. I am curious what further prophecies that she'll reveal. I do think there is a strong possibility that Jamie and Brienne will encounter her again, especially if the Brotherhood if they end up in the Brotherhood's clutches and they spend some time with them, perhaps they will get to meet the ghosts of High Heart. And I will be very curious about what uh, she is going to say about Jamie and Brienne, especially Jamie, um, given the likelihood that he's going to be murdering Cersei uh, towards the end of his story. So I think the ghost of High Heart is another very minor character in the grand scheme of things, but she has a lot of impacts throughout both the backstory and the present story. I think she's spooky. I think she's awesome. And I do think she is a child of the forest. So I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords Aria 4. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check on our you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F, where patrons get early access, bonus episodes, and a lot of great benefits besides. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, the Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, 
Lady Silverwing, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planeto Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, Sir Andrew of H-Town, Archmaster Hugh of the Tower, whose rod and ring are of tinfoil, and our newest High Lord, Aeron Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, who returns from his long voyage of prophesying about the Messiah Euron Greyjoy to join the League of High Lords to continue spreading the gospel of Euron Greyjoy. So thank you as always so much to our High Lords and ladies, and welcome back to Aaron Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai. We're so glad to have you with us again. I've always loved that day, Van. And yeah, thank you so much for, 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 uh, for joining us. And thank you to all of our High Lords and Ladies for your support on Patreon. So join us next week for a Storm of Swords Daenerys 2 Part 1 in which Daenerys does not go to hell. Well, she does go to hell. It really, Astapor super fucking resembles hell, doesn't it? You know, in Monopoly, when they got the jail a piece on the jail spot on the board, but there's like the just visiting part right outside it. That's what Danny does in her character. She just visits hell, just just for a little bit. But yes, we're going to be doing Danny two in two parts because it's it's an immense chapter, lots of things going on in Danny's introduction to Slavers Bay. So next week we're going to be covering just her introduction to the city, meeting with the slavers, reviewing the Unsullied, and then the week after that we'll cover her talking about it with Barristan and uh, Jorah Mormont about what she's going to do next. So Danny's story really takes off in a new and, and a semi-permanent direction here, so there's going to be lots to say. Looking forward to it. Can I wait to do that with you, sir? So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 2, Part 1.